we are in this, Paul, or as uh, Fred reminded us, to, we want to start on verse 26 of, of chapter 13, but I want to remind you of what's going on here, particularly for a couple of you maybe who weren't here last week or two. We're in sort of the middle of Paul's first missionary journey, and if you're following, uh, if you want to follow, uh, you'll have, you want to have that map that's in the notes that we gave you. It's on my page five. I think I found out a week or two ago there might be page six, but I'm not sure what your pages are. But it has at its title, The First Missionary Journey. But anyway, um, the Apostle Paul is in Pisidian Antioch. Um, again, you can notice that on the, the map. He is in uh, what today you and I would call Turkey, then was called the Roman province of Asia, and there were many subdivisions of that province. But anyway, what is going on here is Paul is uh, Paul's with Barnabas. John Mark has joined them, and uh, they went into the synagogue in that city, and they heard the word read. They heard the prophets, uh, law and the prophets read as it stated. And the leader of the synagogue looks at Paul and says, Brother, do you have a word of encouragement for us? which was just a remarkable invitation for him. Uh, and uh, he stands up and begins to give this, what really is more of a discourse than a sermon. And what I wanted to do with this, uh, and I wrote some things on the board here that uh, should probably show up in next week's thought paper. But uh, I want to I review a couple of things that Paul is doing here which, which teaches us something about how we connect the New Testament and the Old Testament. First of all, and you're going to see this as we get into it in just a little bit, the Old Testament prophecies, and Paul will cite several of them uh, from various portions of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecies uh, and some of its teaching, even like the, uh, the portions that are called the law or the histories, are are connected to the New Testament when it focuses on Christ. And the word that is almost always used is fulfilled. In other words, the Old Testament prophecies and teachings about the coming Christ are fulfilled in the New Testament. In other words, Jesus fulfills them. It's recorded over and over and over again, both in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the teaching sections, which for Paul it's 13 letters, book of Hebrews, and others. Now, there's one other thing I want you to think about with me, and it's really quite important for our understanding of the authority of the Bible in our lives. The Old Testament is called Scripture. The New Testament is called Scripture. Let me give you an example. In First uh, or rather in Second Peter chapter three, Paul quotes from Paul and says some of his teachings are difficult as are all scripture. What did, what did Peter just do? Dump all of Paul's 13 letters into that category called scripture. You following? Um, Paul, for example, quotes from the Gospel of Luke and calls it scripture. Now I'm using all that because these writers, like Paul and Luke and others that are in the New Testament, are aware that what they are writing as witnesses of the truth about Christ, what they are writing is complementing, C-O-M-P-L-E, you know what I mean by that word, complementing what is in the Old Testament. So you have the New Testament, which is being written, and they're consciously aware 
of what they're writing with the, with the Old Testament texts, which are fulfilled in Christ, so they have equal authority. That's why we speak of the Old Testament and the New Testament, a total of 66 books that we call the Bible. And what, what's beginning to develop, and we're at one of those points here with Paul, Paul is quoting from the New Old Testament, and he's quoting from the Old Testament to prove that all their teachings and all their prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. And as he's writing these and connecting all these, he's aware that he's developing an equally authoritative set of writings that complement the Old Testament. Now, I'm speaking kind of like a professor there. But I want you to understand, this is a very, very important point that we are making here. That these individuals who are writing this, the, the Old New Testament are aware of what they're doing under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course. But what, what is emerging is the equal authority of both Testaments because they are the connecting point of both Testaments is Jesus. Okay, you got that? Yes. Yes, Rob. Um, would you say that um, the people that uh, we sometimes call replacement theologians disagree with that statement that they're of equal authority or are they talking more about covenants? Uh, I think they're speaking a little more about the covenant and the basic tenet of replacement theology is God is done with Israel, the church replaces Israel. And I totally disagree with that but some do argue that. But that's, even those who hold to that position are not necessarily giving up the equal authority of both testaments. And every time we hear the word theologian, we assume that they believe like we are being taught in this class, that they are believers in Christ, that they have bridged the gap between Old and New Testament. But in fact, a theologian necessarily wouldn't necessarily be it, yeah. a believer even, would they? Well, it, yeah. The study. Yeah, the, the, the theologians, particularly today, you know, maybe 150 years ago, you could have a pretty degree, good degree of certainty of a person who is a theologian. Uh, and what, what they're saying is equal, equal uh, to what we are, what I teach, what we're, we're, we're going over here today, and trustworthy. I'm not sure we could say that today. That bothers me too, quite a bit. Um, Woody? I was rereading, you said there was going to be like in three sessions. And, mm-hmm. and I was rereading the one that we... Got done last, last week, week yep. And uh, it sent me on the bunny trail. Good. I did not know about judges. I had never read about judges. Oh. And I had to ask my wife, and we Googled it, and <laughs> and, uh, and they mentioned Yahweh mm-hmm. uh, had appointed the judges mm-hmm. and how many there were. Right. And that uh, God stayed with them all that time. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, it might be a fun book to study after we're done with with the Book of Acts. Go back to the Old Testament because that's a that is a, that is a very very important book in the history of Israel. But it's that gap between when Joshua completes the conquest of Canaan and the beginning of the monarchy. That's a very important gap there. Uh, there's much that we learn about Israel, much we learn about what God is doing, even in that period of the judges, because there's no centralized kingdom, capital, center. Uh, all 12 tribes are just dispersed, and they're ruling their own little land grant that Joshua, and it's very, they almost lose it there. 
It's a disastrous time. But at the same time, you do learn a lot about it. So I'm glad you, uh, you when you, when you uh, go down bunny trails, you learn. I had to go so, back. I still have to go back. I want to read that's, that's all right. But going down bunny trails, you learn. So don't ever neglect to go down a bunny trail. Now this seems markedly different from Islam. I don't remember the Quran referring back to this. No, it doesn't. The Quran, uh, the Quran says uh, that Muhammad, excuse me, Allah revealed himself in a number of prophets. Uh, Abraham is considered a very important prophet of God. Uh, David, uh, Moses, then Jesus. But all this is how they argue. The last and final revelation of Allah is the Quran. And you can't trust what you and I call the Old Testament, New Testament, they call, they have a little bit of a different name for it, because it's been so corrupted. So you're, and you know what I mean by corrupted, that you really can't trust it. So the only thing you can really trust is the Quran, which they teach, and, and which is the linchpin of their whole belief system, is the final, inerrant, authoritative word from Allah. Now, they would totally disagree with us. Totally. All right, that's, uh, I would want to see that in the thought paper, the way I'm going to structure it for next week's assignment. So if you have any questions about that, I'm just kidding. But, you know, that's just kind of an important link that I hope you can make in your mind about what really is going on here as we get into Paul's little message or discourse or whatever. We had done the first part, and Woody was absolutely correct. You can divide this little discourse of, of Paul's at Pisidian Antioch in this synagogue into three parts. Part one was a very brief overview of their history. And then, starting in verse 26 through verse 37, is the second part and the most important part because that focuses on Jesus Christ. But notice how he does this. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, why does he refer to the Jews in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch as sons of the family of Abraham? Why does he do that? Covenant. Thank you, Jim, that's exactly right. Reminding them that they are people of the covenant which he referred to in the previous uh, section. That's extremely important because he's connecting the two. He's connecting the Old Testament teachings about the covenant with Jesus. And those among you who fear God, we, we had come across that last week, they're nicknamed the God-fears. These are Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. These are not Jews. These are Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. Uh, by this time, and by this time I mean you know, middle of the first century or so, by this time, almost all synagogues in the Eastern Mediterranean world had Gentiles who had converted. Another term that's used for them is the proselytes. And that is a word you see in the, in the New Testament. So, I mean, I just want to make sure that in this synagogue city in Antigua, there are two groups of people. There are the covenant people of, of, of Abraham, the Jews, 
and there are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. Okay? To us, and he's including everybody now, has been sent the message of this salvation. What message? Takes you back to verse 23. Has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so Paul is now connecting all of that Old Testament material, which he went over and we studied last week, in this whole meaning of salvation. And that's why you could add, if you want to put a big header to all of this, the theme of both the Old and the New Testament is the redemptive plan of God. That is the redemptive plan of God is laid out prophetically in the old, fulfilled in the new, and this and this are equal in their authority because they both revolve around Christ. This is the prophecy. This is the fulfillment. This is God's redemptive plan. And so Paul uses that term, as you see that, in uh, what verse am I in? In verse uh, 26, the message of this salvation. What salvation? The salvation that had been prophesied and promised in the old, fulfilled in Christ, who is our Savior, a Savior Jesus, as he said in verse 23. Now, what does he do? What he does is he asks and answers this question. Well, if that's true, if what is up here is true, why didn't the Jews in Jerusalem accept it? Or you could put it another way, why did the Jews in Jerusalem reject it? <laughs> that's what he's going to answer. Verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. And that's true. Every Sabbath, they read the laws and the prophets. So Paul is saying, it's not that they're ignorant of it. It's there in, re in writing. They read it. They hear it. They listen to it. The utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And there is another theme. I, I'm not going to write any more up there. But there's another theme, this overarching sovereignty and providence of God. That the Messiah would be rejected and that the Messiah would be executed was part of the plan. And here's where you, you have that, I know you are thinking this way, but here's you have that tension between the divine sovereignty of God and the responsible freedom of the human being. But what God is, or excuse me, what Paul is saying is that they condemned him is the fulfillment of the prophecies. Do you, do you understand? I'm trying to be really succinct here. You know, what Paul, it's, it's, actually it's quite brilliant here how Paul, he's taking huge chapters of the Old Testament and major parts of the New Testament, distilling it down into one sentence. Even the, these who live in Jerusalem, because why did they reject him? And the rulers, they did not recognize him, nor did they understand the prophets, even though it's read every day on the Sabbath in their synagogues or in the temple, but in condemning Jesus, they fulfilled the prophecies which they rejected. 
you know, some of you are looking at me like either you have no idea what I just said, or you think I'm speaking a, another language, or you're just stunned by what Paul has said. So, Glenn, you're stunned. No. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. I did, but what I'm is the fulfilled them refers back to the prophets. Okay, yes. Let me make sure I'm connected. Yep, you got it. Can, can you deal with the reason, uh, just the crux of that, why they rejected Christ as he came, as he existed, and as he died, versus the Messiah that was promised to the Jews in the Pentateuch? Well, and so many other parts of the yeah, Old Testament. Well, I mean, there are, that's a, a, a question that can be answered at several levels. I mean, because it, it depends on who the people are and so on. But for the most part, um, the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah was a conscious, intentional act on their part because Jesus did not meet their expectations. And their expectation was, and it's just a dis- it's a um, it's a partial fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ, and they picked and they chose. We like this prophecy, but not this one, because they were under the oppressive rule of Rome, and it, it it's absolutely true that in the Old Testament in the prophetic material it says that Messiah will be a ruler. He will vanquish all his foes. He will. Uh, vanquish evil, he will deal with the rulers of Israel that have oppressed, all of those things, but they also taught that before he would accomplish those things, he would die for his people. Isaiah 53 is a nice place where that's succinctly stated. And so they rejected that. No, 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 we don't want to see that. It's just this. So Jesus comes in and teaches things that are not what they want to hear in terms of what their preconceived notions of what Messiah. So a simple answer, it is probably a little more complex than that, but a simple answer is Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and that expectation was the preconceived notion of a military leader. And they formalized it and preached it to the Jews. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the Pharisees were the nationalists, the, the patriots of, of the first century. Uh, the Sadducees were a little more cautious because they didn't want to upset Rome particularly. But um, generally speaking, that's where most people were. And that's not, what, that's not the message Jesus was preaching. But he was doing exactly what Isaiah said. How will you know Messiah, Isaiah says? Messiah will raise the dead, give healing to the sick, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf. What did Jesus do? Raised people from the dead, healed the sick. Exactly what Jesus did, parallel exactly what Isaiah said Messiah would do. But he isn't preaching, teaching, or leading a revolution against Rome, so to speak. So therefore, we don't want to do with him. And there's another, but I'm not going to get into that. I mean, there's another very personal thing, because if Jesus is truly the Messiah, and what his program is, then the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to lose all their influence and all their power. So this is a very personal. Does that answer your question? Is everybody tracking with me? Yes. Now. Had they been warned of false prophets at that point? Would they 
regard Jesus as a false prophet, not the truth. I know they regard him as not the true Messiah, but have they been... Well, there, I mean, it, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The Old Testament is filled with teaching about false prophets. How will you know a false prophet? This is what you do with false prophets and all that. Um, again, for the most part, it isn't that issue that is really causing them to reject Jesus. They're not rejecting him as a false prophet. They're rejecting him as an aberrant rabbi who has delusions of grandeur. And his program is so distorted and so warped, uh, we don't want to listen to him. And therefore, we got to we got to get rid of this guy. And so we're going to trump up charges to get Rome to kill him on the charge of sedition, which is what they did. So I mean, I want you to see. I'm sorry. No, that's that's all right. <laughs> we got one verse uh, down. We only have. You know, I, I was a little late. I'm sorry because of parking. But equal authority between the OT prophecies and and the. Well, in other words, equal authority between the Old, the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, each has equal authority. As this is being, as these letters are being written, as these gospel accounts are being written, because of how they structure it, they are aware and understand that they're writing Scripture with equal authority to the Old Testament. Okay. okay. And, and verse 26, fellow children of Abraham... And you God-fearing Gentiles. Now, were the Abraham, were the Jews had been converted? or No, 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 no. The, this is a synagogue. This is a Jewish synagogue. And These aren't Christians yet. Yeah, These okay. are Jews. God-fearing Gentiles were, were who, not Jews. N- no, they converted to Judaism. Okay. They've converted to Judaism. So they have been converted. They to been Judaism, God, not Christianity. Yeah. yeah I mean, Judaism. that... Paul, oh, okay. Paul is speaking in a synagogue of a city in Antioch uh, and, and talking about Jesus, but these are people who are Jews who have the Judaistic worldview, okay. still expecting the Messiah to come. Okay. And a group, and it really, when you put it all together in the Eastern Mediterranean, it's a fairly significant number of Gentiles who converted to Judaism. I've never seen in a reliable number, but there are individuals before, I have, before they later Before they will convert to Christ. That's right. That's right. And you got to remember, these guys and gals, women or whatever, that are converting to Judaism, they're converting out of a Greco-Roman way of looking at things. Polytheistic, the kinds of gods that are part of the Greco-Roman worldview. They're abandoning that and embracing Judaism, the belief in Yahweh and all the things in the Old Testament. And, and, and with the teaching that Messiah is coming. So, I mean, that, that's remarkable that you have a group of Gentiles abandoning the Greco-Roman way of thinking and taking a step of truth. I mean, there's truth in Judaism. But it, the, the bottom line Judaism, what are you going to do with Jesus as Messiah? And that because, but they're taking a step away from error toward truth, and that's why there's, there, so many of them are going to accept Christ. We have a couple of examples that we studied so far. Cornelius, remember? The Roman military officer that Peter led to Christ. You have Philip leading, or well, he actually uh, is baptized even. But you have the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a top official in the government of Ethiopia. Uh, he was already a convert to Judaism. That's why he was up in Jerusalem. So you see it's just little snippets of this that Luke just tells us about in the book of Acts. 
May I move on to the next verse? Would that be all right? Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Of course, that's a part of the gospel message. I don't think there's anything there you're not aware of. Verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, please note that all that was written of him, where was it written? In the Old Testament prophecies. So when they carried it out, carried out another way of saying fulfilled. They took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Now Paul is reviewing this message of the gospel, but he's reviewing this message of the gospel through the grid of the Old Testament prophetic teaching. And his key is, this has been fulfilled. And even those who oppose Christ in Jerusalem are fulfilling the prophecies about Jesus. So, I mean, Paul is just presenting this in a, uh, in a compelling fashion because then these Jews in Pisidia and Antioch and these converts to Judaism have never heard this before. They've never heard it presented this way before. And that's the whole point of the first missionary journey is to present to Gentiles, to present to Jews in the Eastern Mediterranean where they probably never heard the gospel message presented in this way, and they're going to respond. This is a totally different direction than how you would want to explain it to the Gentiles. Absolutely. The, the only reason he's doing it is because they've converted Judaism. He's not going to, he will not preach this way in Acts 17 when he's in Athens with the philosophers. This isn't how he's going to do it. Because that's irrelevant to them. They have no idea what the Old Testament is. They have no idea what the prophecies are. So what does Paul do in Acts 17? He quotes from their philosophers and says, what your philosophers say about God, I'm here to tell you, I know who this God is. He's revealed himself. And the beginning point of understanding Revelation is coming to terms with who Jesus is. So it's a totally different method. As one of my teachers in graduate school used to say, after you've exegeted the Bible and studied, then exegete your audience. Make sure you know about your audience. You know, I mean, I, that, that was what, I've never forgotten what Dr. Evans said, that Tony Evans was my homiletics teacher. I've never forgotten that. Of all the things, I, I think I forgot about 98.9999% of everything he said, except that. And that's one of the most important truths. Because if I'm teaching, I don't do that anymore, but if I'm teaching a youth group of kids, that's going to be a lot different than you. I start talking, now I'm going to talk about social media issues, I'm going to talk about the things that you're doing on Facebook, and what's Twitter, and all those kinds of things. You guys don't even know what that is. I'm kidding. I'm being a little... Now, I'm just using it. So you, you, you must touch the audience with the truth. That's mean you must know something about the audience. So Paul does. Paul does. And again, ask Pilate to have him executed, and you know what all. <clears throat> Verse uh, uh, 31. So you, he's, and for many days he appeared to those who have come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Every New Testament writer does that. Reviews the historic events of the death, burial, or even going back, the trial, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then they bring in, we are witness to this. Or I am a witness to this. 
or there are many witnesses to this. Why do they keep bringing that up? To say, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who saw this. That's right. All these other people did too. This is history. It's real. It isn't made up. This isn't some myth or legend. This is history. And there are witnesses to this event. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you a list. I'll give you their email addresses. I'll give you their cell phone number. And you can, you know, that I'm making up. But you can contact them. We are witnesses to this. This is an historically verifiable event. And that is really important because today there are many, many, many people alive who say that story of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is a myth. Professors in mainline denominational seminaries, this is what they're teaching. That's what the early church wanted to believe, that he was resurrected. It really didn't happen, but that's what they want to believe, so they incorporated that wish into their teaching. What's the basis of their statement? They deny... They deny all of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most attested events. Do you know what I mean by attested? One of the most attested events coming out of the ancient world. I mean that. But it's intellectually dishonest to then say, well, I don't care how many witnesses there are. I don't care how much evidence. I'm still going to reject it. That's, that's not, I mean, that's, that's intellectual arrogance and it's intellectual dishonesty. But, you know, and that's very pervasive, as you know. So I just want to, you know, don't, don't gloss over that verse. When Paul says, who are now his witnesses, this is history. It's verifiable. And all the gospel writers and m- most, if not all of, of the, the, the epistle right, you know, the letters, the didactic portion. Peter does this. We studied Peter a little bit ago. He says, I'm a witness to this stuff. I stood with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, and I saw this happen. I mean, they're, they're giving historical accounts, and they're, they're establishing its consistency and its veracity. That's what Paul's saying. And we're witnesses. Witnesses had to be really important. People that wanted to believe yeah. wanted to know more about it. I mean, they could give the testimony that they actually seen him. Absolutely. Walk with him. They had supper with him. Absolutely. Yeah. The estimate is, the estimate is in the forty days from Jesus' resurrection until his ascension back to heaven, he appeared to over ten thousand people. That's the estimate. Eleven distinct historic events. We know of eleven. I think it's eleven. I think it's 11 attested events, people he met, he had dinner with, he, whatever. Uh, and the total number is close, they say, when you add it all up, it's close to 10,000. That's a lot of witnesses. I mean, that's a lot of witnesses to an event. What is the event? The resurrected Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's just really an important point. And again, I mean, it's, it's just trying to establish something that is almost always mocked and derided by the critic of the scriptures. You believe a myth. You believe a story. You believe a legend. And my response is, uh, have you examined the evidence? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most attested events coming out of the ancient world. Have you examined the evidence? You know some of these stories, don't you? 
early in the 20th century, a British lawyer who was antagonistic to Christianity, hostile toward, and he was an avowed atheist, and he decided to write a book uh, showing the mockery of the resurrection. And he started examining all the evidence. He started examining all the details of the evidence. And he became a Christian, and he wrote a book entitled Who Moved the Stone, which is one of the most, in the early 20th century, one of the most famous books of the early 20th century. An atheist becoming a Christian because he started, took out after the doctrine of the resurrection to prove it's a ridiculous belief, and ended up saying, my glory, the evidence of this is so overwhelming, I've got to accept it. Lee Strobel, I'm sure you know that name, he's a fairly well-known guy now. Lee Strobel's the same, he was an avowed atheist, he was a reporter for the Chicago, I think it was Chicago Sun-Times, but, huh? Is a Tribune, but I mean, he was well known, and he just his wife had become. He was just mocking it, and he said, "I'm going to dig in. I'm going to show this is all ludicrous." He ended up the, the evidence was so overwhelming. He became a Christian, and he you know wrote a, those series of books, the case for the case for the case. He's got a bunch of books with those titles. That's, that's it. I always challenge people who mock it. I said, "Listen, you can believe that, but if you're intellectually honest, you're going to want to examine the evidence." I'll help you examine the evidence, or I'll tell you how to go about examining evidence, and then tell me if you still believe it's a myth. Every now and then, somebody takes that challenge, mostly don't. Verse 32, and we bring you the good news. Good news is gospel. That what God promised to the Father, what God promised to the Father, has been, what's the word? What's he used? What's the word? Fulfilled. What God promised has been fulfilled to us, their children, descendants of the promise, back to verse 26, family of Abraham, by raising Jesus. And now what Paul does is he's going to start a series of quotations from Old Testament texts to prove that. To prove what he just said and what I messed on this board up here. As is written in 2nd Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. This is the coronation formula. This is the father saying to the son a promise. And as for the fact that he raised from the dead no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Isaiah 53, verse 3, the fulfillment. Then he says also in another psalm, it's Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not let your holy one see corruption, see decay. Your body's not going to decay and be eaten by the worms in the grave. So what Paul does is he knits together three messianic prophecies. Three, and these are these were all of these, all of these were well known to a Jew. All of these are well known to the Jew and called messianic prophecies. That's how they would, that's how a rabbi would talk about these. And what Paul says, these are fulfilled in Jesus. When God raised him from the dead, when he raised his son from the dead, he fulfilled the promise of Psalm 2 7. He fulfilled the promise of Isaiah 53.3, and he fulfilled the promise of Psalm 16.10. He said, it can't apply to David. It can't. Why? 
Because David, after he served the purpose for God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Worms ate his skin. Worms ate his body. He's down to just the bones. And he took the bones and put them in an urn. That's David. That's not Jesus. Now, I'm preaching here. I'm sorry. I'm getting all animated. But this is just, this is what is going on here. There's absolutely a compelling case to make to a Jewish synagogue. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. It's almost like Paul saying, go to the grave in Jerusalem, and what are you going to see? You're not going to see a decaying body being eaten by worms. Because they would, you know, the, the, the tradition in, well, it, it was quite a few centuries, but the tradition is you would place your loved one in an open, not an open grave, but a grave where it's kind of like a little trough or a, a little ledge or whatever, and then in about 18 months, you'd come back. And you'd clean it all up, clean all the bones, and then put them in an ossuary. Put them in a box about this big. Because when that was grandpa, when dad dies, you put dad there too. That's how, that's how they did it. And so when, when a Jew talks about corruption, seeing the decay, I know exactly, you and I don't do that. We put our loved ones in very expensive coffins and elaborate things in graves, which is fine, nothing wrong with that. But we don't go and open the grave then in 18 months. That's what they did in the first century. And we have found hundreds and hundreds of ossuaries in, in archaeology. That, so they know exactly what that means. And it's like Paul saying, he's back in. If you don't believe me, go to Jerusalem. Is, is that grave? Is there a decaying body in that grave? Is there an ossuary with a bunch of his bones like there is David's? No. See, what Paul is doing is he's making all of these connections for Jews because they would have known these passages and say, this has all been fulfilled in Jesus. So he's pointing out the passages that prove that exactly. it's fulfilled. Yes. Here are the prophets and teaching fulfilled in Christ and both of these have equal authority. This is a completed story of Jesus. 66 books. Remember Luke 24? We studied Luke a while ago. Luke 24, he's walking down the Emmaus River, these two Emmaus disciples. Remember what it tells? And after they realized who it is, and he taught them all about himself from the scriptures. That, oh, that is one place I want to go back in time. But when I go back, I want to take my MP3 player with me. And I want to tape everything Jesus said. And I'm going to publish a book. The, the prophecies of Jesus fulfilled from the mouth of our Savior. It's a, isn't that a very self-serving thing to say? But I mean, it's just, it, oh, that would be tremendous to hear Jesus expound on the scriptures. What you're uh, talking about is, is, as we witness to people... And, you know, we're fearful of witness because witnessing, because we're going to run somebody off, we're going to say the wrong thing. You know, that's the devil talking. But at the same time, for the positive aspect of that, is that when we have an audience, we should, whoever it is, whether it's one or more people, and we're sharing the message of Jesus Christ for salvation purposes, that we talk about what they are familiar with is being done mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. so they're following it mm -hmm. and they agree with the basics here and then the connecting one between 
what they believe and then Christ today, uh, if, if we can make that transition, yeah. it's not like a giant leap. It's like it's a progression of That's thinking. Right. Right? That's right. That's right. That's why it's important to have some understanding of where the person's coming from, if possible. When I wrote my book on worldviews, every chapter ends with building bridges. In other words, now you know what this worldview believes and stands for. You know what you, how do you build bridges to that person? You find out someone's a Buddhist. What, what are the bridges you can build to make those connections if God gives you that opportunity? How would you do that? I mean, that's part of, of, of doing something that's very natural, and, and it, you always trust in the Lord, because the Lord is the one who changes people. We don't do that. But that's what Paul's doing. He understood his audience, and he, it's, he's brilliantly, brilliantly making all the connections that are going to get their intention, and leads us to verse 38, which the last part of his, his little message, the application. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, what man? Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, Joe, can I use another piece of paper? Yeah. Well, I don't own this. I feel like I would ask the most powerful man in the First National Bank organization if I can do it. ESV, and I think most of your translation have the word free. And it's in um, in verse, well, it's in both, ver- both times. It's in verse 39. The word freed, now permit me to do this. Is dikaiao in Greek. Paul always uses that in his writings in Book of Romans and Galatians. In those, that word dikaiao is translated justified. Here it's translated free. So Paul saying, I mean, let's just read it as if you're reading it in Greek, but everyone who believes is dikaioed from everything from which you could not be dikaioed in the law of Moses. Everyone who believes is justified, for you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul is, now remember, this is early, well, well, yeah, sort of. I mean, it's it, this is the beginning of Paul's public ministry, uh, he hasn't written any letters yet. He'll write Galatians in AD 49 at the end of the first missionary journey. He'll write, he'll write Romans later in the 50s. But he's beginning to develop the vocabulary. Now, I'm focusing on just the human side of, of the Bible, not the Holy Spirit inspiring it. But he's beginning to develop the vocabulary he's going to use in his ministry. Now, are you tracking with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? And so this is, a, this is a remarkable precursor, a remarkable insight into how Paul is going to talk to Gentiles and Jews. You want justification? 
It doesn't come through the law. It comes through Christ. You want to be declared righteous? It doesn't come through the law. It comes through Christ. You want to be freed from the bondage to sin? that does not come through the law. It comes through Jesus. So when he says, when the ESV, and I think almost all the translations, I checked it. I think almost every major translation uses the word freed. Everyone who believes is freed. That's the opposite of bondage. That's the opposite of slavery. It's the opposite of bondage to sin. Because the law of Moses can't do that. Remember, he's speaking to Jews. He wouldn't, he wouldn't talk like that to somebody in Athens. They wouldn't have a clue what he's even talking about. But to speak this way to Jews, to speak this way to Jews is, oh my goodness! And it raises all kinds of questions, but he's saying the path to freedom is not through the law of Moses. The path to freedom is through Christ. And then he goes back into the Old Testament and snatches out an obscure verse from one of the minor prophets. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Habakkuk, where you all had your morning reading. You all studied that this morning. I'm kidding. Look at the scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. What's Paul saying? God is doing, as he did in the time of Habakkuk, he's doing a fantastic work in your time, but it is up to you to respond to it. Embrace what God is doing. Because that's the implication. He doesn't state it here, but what's the implication? If you don't embrace it, you face God's judgment, which is really what Habakkuk is saying when you go back and look at it. So, I mean, this, I hope, oh, this is, so, this is so exciting to me because in verse 39, you start to see Paul is developing the language he's going to use. How am I going to talk about what Jesus did? And Paul, not, not that Peter doesn't, the book of Hebrews does it too, but Paul develops all of his epistles around this message of justification. Righteousness, freedom, bondage, freedom for, is all through Jesus. And it's here, accepted. I know in the Old Testament, sins were covered with blood. That's right. But here Paul talks about justification. Is that a new concept, that positional? It is. It is uh, in, in a real sense, Jim. Uh, the, the idea of righteousness is all through the Old Testament. And the idea of righteousness, which is an attribute of God so much in the Old Testament, but it's stressed what God does so that you can walk with him and be righteous is the ongoing atonement. Atonement means to cover. The ongoing atonement for your sin, which is through the sacrifices. And as you do that, you understand that's not what saves me. God saves me, justifies me, makes me right through his work, which is the covering of the blood. The blood covers my sin, but I need to keep doing it because I keep sinning. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the idea of a legal, forensic declaration from God is not, not taught ma in a major way in the Old Testament. It's there in its genesis, but Paul fully develops it. Was 
been very revolutionary. Oh. Concept of oh, it is. Oh, and that's why there is such unbelievable passion in those early centuries of the church. And nothing else taught that. And there's nothing today, nothing teaches this. Islam doesn't teach this. You have no idea that Allah will look with favor of you even the moment you die. You have no assurance. You hope, you hope you've done enough. You try to be faithful, but you have no idea of, of your future when you die as a Muslim. You're hoping and believing you did enough. And the whole idea of Eastern pantheism, which is Hinduism and Buddhism, that's the whole, you know, karma and all that. Did I do enough good things so I don't come back as a flea next life? Because I want to come back at least as something higher. I, you know, I, I want to come back as Donald Trump, who's got lots of money and lots of power. I'm making it up. I really don't want to do that. But I'm just saying, you know, that's how you would think, because you never know if you've done enough, let alone to escape from the bondage of reincarnation. You never know. You know with Jesus. <coughs> there is that declaration of righteousness, that you are acquitted of your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You have certainty and assurance because, and this is what Paul's introducing, the declaration of righteousness is what dikaio means, comes through Christ, not through the law. If you believe that keeping the law earns you justification, you're into legalism, and that's not what the gospel is. So, and, and uh, with Jim, like Jim said, to, to a group of Jews in Pisidian Antioch, verse 39 is a revolutionary idea, a radical idea. And you just want to say, man, they should have all jumped at this and said, yes, some did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just... But it's a powerful concept which will change the Mediterranean world in the first century. And in, in 250 years, it, as one of the Roman historians would say, they turned the world upside down through this message, this single message that Paul is summarizing here. It will turn the world upside down. It's the most revolutionary force in human history. That's what people want to know, want to believe. And some logic well, and again, I, I want to make sense of what we celebrate in Easter. I mean, why do we celebrate Easter? It's a big, it's a great holiday. Loads of people. It's, now it's centered on candy and Easter bunnies and little chicks and things like that, which have absolutely nothing to do with the message. But why do we celebrate Easter? Why do most Americans go to church or synagogue? Well, not synagogue, but go to church on Easter. Well, my wife has a new dress. It's spring. I think we'll go because it's tradition. It just feels good. And somehow, I don't know if I really believe in God, but somehow I think it probably does earn some brownie points with him, so we'll go. To disrupt all the family, get the kids up. They don't want to do it. Nobody really wants to do it. It's a disruptive thing, but you do it. Hardly with joy, hardly with meaning. I, I'm really cynical. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be that cynical. 
But to say, well, what is Easter really all about? It's the most triumphant thing in history. It's the most triumphant event in history. It proved that the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross three days earlier was accepted by the Father, and he rose, raised him from the dead, conquering death, which is a penalty of sin. He's alive. The profound truth of biblical Christianity is the grave's empty. You'll search in vain for any remains of Jesus because the grave is empty. In three days, he was up. Well, anyway. I mean, that's, this is what Paul is telling these people. This is what he's declaring to these people. A revolutionary, life-changing, and don't scoff at it because God is doing a mighty work in your day. And accept it. I mean, embrace that truth. And so you have the first, this is the first real message of Paul that was a little bit earlier when he was up in Damascus, but this is a full-blown, well-articulated, well-thought-through presentation and reflects, I think, his 10 years of discipline study up there in Tarsus. This is what he's going to teach now. And he's developing his language of how he's going to use this under the inspiration of the Spirit. And verse 39 is such a good indicator of that. Now, I did a lot, I did more preaching today than teaching. I, I, that's because I'm so excited about this. But do, do you really understand, could you do your thought paper on Paul? Thought paper is to demonstrate how Paul links the Old and New Testament using the word fulfilled, a thousand words or less. I don't know why I do that. It's just I used to be a teacher, and I still look at you as my students, even though I can't hold you accountable for anything I do. Can we use the word fulfilled, forgiven, um, in place of freed? Oh, I, I no, I, I wouldn't. Because I think it dilutes, it diminishes the importance of what Paul's trying to say. The, the message, everyone who believes, believes what? The message of who Jesus is and what he's done and fulfilling all the... Well, that, we're on another sheet there. That's what frees you. To believe in that message, that's what frees you. So you're believing in the fulfilled prophetic message from the Old Testament. When I believe that, I'm dikaiaod. I'm freed. I'm justified. You know, and I'm thinking like freed from past sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. All right, you got it? Nobody got it. Okay, nobody's responding. So you must have no idea what I've just been saying for the last hour. All right, let's try to complete. Well, we'll not do that. But let's move on now to the next part of, of, of what happened here in Pisidian Antioch. As they went out, uh, this is great. As they went out, meaning out of the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Come back next week for part two. This is a Bible conference every Sunday, every Sabbath. I made that up. That's not the way it's, but in other words, come back. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, the word convert there is proselytos, proselyte. Did you ever hear that word, proselyte? That's, that's the Greek word there for convert. Followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
Now, who's the them? The them are the, the Jews and converts to Judaism that are following. They, they're converts. Paul and Barnabas are saying, continue. Now, continue in the grace of God. This is step one. Continue your walk with God. Verse 44, a week later, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost all, now, now, don't think of a city in Antioch as New York City. It's, you know, it's a small community, albeit an important one politically. So I, I don't know, is Luke being a little hyperbolic here, exaggerated language, but almost the whole city. My, always, there's a really significant crowd here that wants to hear Paul preach. What's the first word of verse 45? But. When the Jews saw the crowd, now Luke uses Jews the way John uses the Jews in his gospel. The Jews doesn't mean all Jews. It means the leaders. The leaders saw the crowd. They were filled with jealousy. What are they jealous about? Pardon? Yeah. If everybody accepts Paul's message, what's going to happen to us? I'm going to be out of a job, head of the synagogue. I'll lose my influence. So out of jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. ESV uses the, translates that reviling. What does revile mean? That's a strong word. What does revile mean? That's a good put down in very intense, bitter, strong language. I mean, this is publicly being done. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Who's the you? The Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, you don't want the gift. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So this is Paul's pattern. But he's being very, very categorical here. You had your chance. You've heard the message. Now, many did trust the Lord. We learned that in verse 43. These are the leaders. These are the influence peddlers of the city. We're turning to the Gentiles. Then, this is, this is an amazing quotation. He quotes from Isaiah 49.6. This, and this is speaking of Jesus. This is speaking of the coming Messiah. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The commissioning work of what Messiah was supposed to do is now being carried on by Paul. Now being carried on by Paul and Barnabas. Now being carried on by the people who are dispensed from the Antiochian church. What, what, please don't miss that. Isaiah 90, 49, 6 is referring to what Messiah is going to be. Matthew quotes this when Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee. Matthew says he's doing what the Messiah would do. Paul is saying we're continuing the task of Jesus as a Messiah. We're taking the message to the Gentiles. And that's why Paul will, will be called the apostle to the Gentiles. 
He doesn't neglect the Jewish synagogues and Jewish people in each one of these Gentile cities. He goes to them first. Some will accept it. Presumably, most will not. But his primary message, I should say his primary task, is to take the message to the Gentiles. Do you understand how he's using that Old Testament verse there? Okay. I'll tell you what, I'm going to stop there because verse 48 if you're thinking, raises lots of theological questions. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we got to deal with that next week. So I'm going to postpone. Maybe the Lord will come and I won't have to deal with it. But we'll deal with that next week. We'll start right away in verse 48. Then we'll move into verse 40, I mean, uh, chapter 14, which is first missionary journey continued. They move on to Iconium and Lystra and some of those other cities before they head back to Antioch. Thanks for today. I mean, I really, really was blessed with this today. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I don't know if you guys did, but this is a very, very significant passage of Scripture. So in your thought papers that you'll hand in next week, it's due at a quarter of 11 or a quarter of 12. I mean, will demonstrate to me whether you got it or not. One of these days, well, every now and a couple of you guys do shock me by giving me a thought paper, but... Most of you just, you don't care. But that's all right. Lord, thank you that we've had a good time around the Word of God this morning. Thank you for the power and authority of the Word of God. Thank you for that connection we can make as Paul makes it in uh, his, his message of connecting the Old Testament prophecies with New Testament teaching using the word fulfilled. And as the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New, all centered on Christ, these various apostles, as they're writing their scriptures, they begin to equate equal authority between what was prophesied and what was fulfilled. That's so important to how we see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I thank you for these men. I thank you for their willingness to take an hour or so out of their Wednesdays. In some cases, that can be disruptive because it's over the lunch hour for them but to hear the Word of God, to study the Word of God, and to apply the Word of God to their lives. I, I know they're growing. Many of them I've known now for several years. And the evidence of your grace in their life is overwhelming. May we continue to be the good representatives you call us to be to a world that really needs to hear about Christ. May we do that faithfully with joy as we represent you. In your name, Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.